an A&E original podcast. Here she comes, Miss America, Vanessa Williams. That was so good. That was so good, Kirby. You lied. That was so good. I feel lied too. I, girl, I cannot I was not ready for that. That was so good. If you need me to rap a Drake lyric, I got you. <laughs> Welcome to The Table is Ours, a podcast where we sit down with our Black faves and explore all things from Black identity to Black inspiration to Black culture. We are not asking for a seat at the table. We're building our own table. This is The Table is Ours. I'm Kirby Dixon. Kirby is an epic Libra lady who loves all things Broadway. And that's my co-host, Amira Lawali, who is the epitome of a Capra queen who literally celebrates her birthday after Beyonce's in September all the way through Valentine's Day. Okay, sis, it has been a week, but not the inflection of week that we're used to, not like a week. It's like been the best week ever. We're recording this podcast a day after the inauguration. 2021 started off a little shaky, but after yesterday, I'm totally hopeful. We did it, Joe. We made it. We did it, Joe. We did it. (laughs) I'm feeling great. How are you doing, Amira? I feel relieved. Like, I feel like I finally took a breath of fresh air after, like, years of panic. And also, it was just... It was good seeing people feel relieved and like seeing other people who are like, okay, that was a good, like it was a good move. It was a little bit of goodness and like a very hard time. Isn't it so nice to actually see celebrities wanting to be affiliated with the White House again? Oh, it was great. Hello. (laughs) It was great. And they came out and they're like top fashion of like different, what is it? Monochromatic. Everyone looked like different flavors of ice cream. It was great. And our guest today, I am so excited to say she was part of history. She was part of the inauguration yesterday. Vanessa Williams. We know her. We love her. She is in TV shows like Ugly Betty and Desperate Housewives. She's performed at the Oscars and the Super Bowl, and she has won so many awards. I cannot even list them all here. She sang Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas, people. Vanessa is our multifaceted queen. TV star, movie star, theater star, philanthropist. Keep going. First Black. First Black. Miss America. Speaking. What can she not do? Put some respect on her name. (laughs) Let's get it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. First off, thank you for joining our podcast. We're so excited. Um, But first question, like, how are you? There's so much going on in the world right now. Like, how are you feeling? How are you getting through everything? How are you doing? Um, I'm good. Yesterday was phenomenal uh, inauguration day, and I got a chance to actually be a part of a, gro- a Broadway group that sang uh, a, a, a part of the celebration afterwards. So um, 
we we sang um, uh, Seasons of Love from Rent, yeah. and then we went into Let the Sunshine In, which uh, is a metaphor for how <laughs> I think it, it's it, it feels like a giant exhale. Yes. You know, there's been like this past year has been just a ticking time bomb, and all these kind of sucker punches and being on the defensive and being shocked and gutted and then being angered and on fire. And I feel like there's some resolve after the election, after Georgia, after seeing, you know, uh, Madam Vice President, you know, bring us to tears because, again, it's yet another step. And then, of course, Biden, who's dedicated to being a president for the people, is a breath of fresh air. So I feel like I've just had a giant exhale. Same. We both saw you last night and immediately texted each other. <laughs> and we're like, we have to mention this. Like, we can't believe it. Because we worked right until the, like that concert. We both were like, we have to get off right before the concert. We deserve this. And then we saw you're like, great, we're ready for tomorrow. <laughs> it's like totally divine timing <laughs> that we're actually talking to you today. Yeah. Uh, um, I wanted to ask too, I mean, as someone who knows a little something about being a first, what did kind of yesterday mean for you seeing the first Black woman vice president of the United States? I think we all can agree Black women have held this country together and showed up and showed out. I mean, we always do, but this past year in particular, it's kind of like Black women to the rescue. But for you, what did yesterday mean for you? And kind of how did you get involved with the inaugural programming? Well, when you when you mentioned Black women to the rescue, I think personally, Stacey Abrams is the hero of the year and of the movement of, and of our times right now. And, um, you know, I'm part of a group that started called Black Theater United, and we started these town halls. And one of our first town halls was with Stacey Abrams in the midst of everything going on uh, right after the summer into the fall. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she was the first uh, Black woman to almost win the governorship mm-hmm. and did not because of voter the issues. Question. And she made that her calling card and she was on fire. And that is an example of how we are not, we are so used as Black women to having to come up with a solution and then go right for it. Yeah. There's no excuses because we, we've had our back against the wall so many times generation after generation. So it's that ancestral fire in our belly that we're just born with. And I think she's the perfect example of saying, okay, that door's closed. Well, guess what? We're going to bulldoze this door open and we're going to show you that we're here. So she was amazing. And she is a first. Um, And then Kamala, um, I remember having a Zoom call with Star Jones and a bunch of other Black women, um, kind of a cocktail thing, but our strategy Zoom calls like, how are we going to get her uh, nominated? How are we going to get make sure that uh, Biden picks her as a a woman of color? Sign this petition because we know that this is going to have some effect. And again, it's it's masses, it's focused concentration, and it's it's that fire that uh, allowed Kamala to come in blazing and show up. And you know, it's just a testament to what we can do when we're forced to do it. And, you know, thank God. And uh, it was in back to the original question. It, uh, it was uh, just heartfelt seeing her take her oath, uh, um, Madam Vice President. 
Um, and yet another achievement to show my daughters and hopefully my grandchildren um, that everything is possible. And, and I think that's a, a prime example of that. Yeah, totally. But I do want to talk about you being a first yourself. Um, and I'm sure everyone that's listening to this podcast is fully aware, but we are sitting in front of the first Black Miss America uh, with Vanessa Williams. And I want to ask you, what was it like to be a first? I remember you were very young when you started to hold that title and and had that crown. So what was that like? And were there any kind of external weights or pressures that you felt even at such a young age to hold that title? Uh, I wrote a book actually called You Have No Idea because when I tell my story, people are like, what? I had no idea. What? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was 20 years old when I won in, in September of 1983. I had no intention of ever being a Miss Anything. I was a musical theater major. I had danced and sang and acted all my life and wanted to be on Broadway. And I was going to get my uh, BFA in musical theater, then go to Yale and, and get my master's in, in theater and then go beat the streets in Manhattan on Broadway. So, um, I, so, and I always got scholarships. So I entered the pageant because of the scholarship money ended up winning everything within six months. So I went from, okay, I'll do this to, oh my God, I've made history and I am an example for millions of people. Uh, so yes, it was, uh, exhilarating. Uh, it was prideful. It was, uh, terrifying and tremendously hurtful and anxiety um, ridden uh, I was because I was not seen as a 20 year old who is a junior in college. I was seen as a symbol, uh, but also seen as a black woman uh, and also seen as someone who uh, was supposed to represent the American beauty. And there are a lot of folks that did not believe that having brown skin and being a black woman represented the Miss America ideal. So, it wasn't just, oh, she's not our, you know, she's she's black, so therefore, you know, we're mad at her. I had death threats. Yeah. I had sharpshooters when I did um, my homecoming parade. There were sharpshooters on the top of roofs of my hometown just because of the threat, um, the threats that were, you know, against me because of who I was. Uh, and even when I was on the road and doing my appearances, not only the regular Miss America appearances, but all the black uh, events that were, you know, obviously embracing me. So Urban League and all kinds of uh, uh, NAACP, all kinds of um, of, of uh, groups that had never really cared about Miss America because there was nobody ever representing right. us. All of a sudden I had not only my regular itinerary, but a full packed itinerary. So it was exhausting. Um, and there were times where I felt, uh, and I mentioned being hurt, but not only was I getting attack from white folks saying she doesn't represent us, but mm -hmm. some black folks saying, oh, they only picked her because she's light. Oh, they only picked her because she's light, light eyes and kind of dismissed um, my talent, my intellect and my achievement. So that was probably more hurtful than even though, yes, when someone says they're going to kill you yeah. and you know there's you have an FBI file of people that are crazy and want to kill you and your family, that's one thing. But but it was like my own my own people that was like, you know, it's still not good enough. Are you kidding me? So that was something that I really had to kind of reckon with. And that took, I would say, a good two to three months um, of just talking to my parents and saying, you know, I can't believe it. And being on TV and people saying, well, you know, it doesn't really matter because she's not truly the black ideal. Um, but, you know, obviously, uh, 
I opened the door mm-hmm. and it was my my talent and my intelligence that got me chosen to represent America. And uh, and that was kind of the the hard knots of turning 20. I, as a mother of, of four, I look at my kids and my youngest is 20. I said, oh my God, I can't believe what I had to go through at your age, which is so, so young. You think you're grown, but then you look back and like 20 years old, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know who we were. We didn't really know what we felt, you know, and 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 stood and fought for. But those are the moments that you grow up and say, okay. I mean, I was the first Miss America uh, asked, you know, how do you feel about ERA? And I said, I'm, I'm pro ERA. I think everyone should have equal rights. Yeah. Uh, I was the first one to talk about uh, a be pro, pro-choice. And again, that was like scandalous. So I came in. Blowing it up anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, totally swinging. So I remember you'd mentioned that there was a little bit of backlash that you received from the black community. How did you kind of overcome that? Uh, it was tough to, to take that criticism. Um, and my defense mechanism was, well, this is who I am. This is what I was born to do. And I got my light eyes from my grandfather who was yeah. black. And, you know, we've had black people in, you know, all shades and, and eye colors and hair textures within both sides of my family. And this is who I am. And this is how I came out. So I'm not ap- going to apologize for that. Right. And that's my luxury, but it's also what I will give you. So um, and if you speak, if you're articulate, white people are like, oh, she's so articulate. Yeah. And then black people say, well, she's not really down. She's not really from the hood. So she's not really one of us. So you're kind of caught in the middle of, uh, this is who I am. And I'm not going to be ashamed of the way I speak because my parents made sure that I spoke properly. You know, when you're a parent, all you want your child to do is succeed in the world. And it's about you go into that you go into that audition, you go into that interview, you shake the hand firmly, you look into their eyes because they want you to achieve and go ahead. It has nothing to do with being better somebody. They want you to be able to make it on your own and be independent. And that's kind of what I had to come to grips with that my parents did all they, they could for me to, to succeed. And I don't need to uh, apologize for that. And I am going to embrace who I am and what I've been given. Yeah, it's like this layered sense of self that I think we're constantly like torn between or battling uh, specifically as Black women of all different shapes, sizes, colors, and, and everything else in between. Don't tell me my Black experience. It doesn't, it, it negates like who I am and you don't know who I am and you don't know what I've been, been going through. Mm-hmm. So we have to really be careful, put people in a box and thinking that they don't know what you might relate to because you never know. And I think I can relate in that I am also a light-skinned Black woman with curly hair. And I understand that in many regards, the fact that I am lighter-skinned is privileged. Yeah. So Kirby and I touched on it a little bit in the last podcast we did, but it was that you may sound a little different, you're not labeled Black. But for me, I can take a nap and it's a Black-ass nap. I walk down the street and I'm Black walking down the street. Like there is nothing that's going to change my black identity. So if we're going to go back and forth on that, at least choose something that's not a fact. Right. <laughs> choose something that's not real. Right. right. <laughs> oh my gosh. So you touched on it a little bit earlier and you kind of mm-hmm. define beauty standards for black women. So how did you feel about seeing the beauty standards for black women at that time and have they evolved years later? Well, um, so I grew up... Um, with black and white TV. So then, uh, then it turned to color and black beauty standards in my household. Um, Lena Horn was always one of those women who was not only 
exquisite to look at, but I knew her story. I knew that she was a fighter and she was an advocate and I loved her fire. Um, Diane Carroll was another uh, ideal of beauty when she had her show called Julia uh, and I was young and coming up and she was the first black female to have a show on primetime. She played a nurse. She had a young son named Corey. But again, that was us saying, wow, there's a beautiful black woman on television. And every week you go and, and see what Julia, what was happening with Julia. And she ended up uh, toward the, toward the uh, gosh, about 20 years ago, she played my mother in a movie that I uh, uh, produced called Courage to Love. Mm -hmm. And she told me that she single-handedly integrated the union because she said, I will have somebody doing my hair and this person will be black and there's nobody black in the union and you will make sure that she gets her union credentials. And just those one step always opens the door. So you just never know when you'll be the person to create major change. Um, and then, you know, growing up, I mean, like Shaka. Shaka was like the uh, the idea of sexy, mm -hmm. black, just um, like this effervescent, earthy beauty that still holds up today. Um, there's so many, you know, back in the day, we had this Ebony Fashion Fair, these traveling fashion shows, and they would show up at like... Uh, Right here in, in in Westchester, they were like the county center. And Audrey Smalls was the commentator. And they would do all the fashions that were happening in the fall with furs and gloves and hats and all the, all, you know, Pat Cleveland and Beverly Johnson, mm -hmm. all these amazing models would, would, would strut down the runway. So we were making change after change and lucky to see all kinds of images of, of Black beauty, which was fantastic. So I, I would have, I mean, there's not one that I think I said, I want to be like her, but I didn't have Black dolls growing up. It wasn't until probably maybe third or fourth grade where one of my girlfriends had a Black doll called Sasha that she got from, I think it was Sweden because they didn't even make Black dolls back then. And uh, so- so much has changed, obviously, since then in the last 50 years. But it's little by little those opportunities to see Black beauty that really gives you an opportunity to see the variety in, in our wonderful culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the fact that we've expanded our beauty norms, particularly in the Black community. And there are brands like, you know, Fenty and even Ivy Park that are widening the norms and that it's not just how you look in terms of your facial structure, your color and things like that nature, but also size, right? Totally changed mm -hmm. the game when it comes to modeling and, and showing the representation that we actually see in our communities. And I think we like, you know, we're now our podcast is called The Table is Ours. And I think Amir and I are really big on giving flowers when flowers are due. And so thank you for breaking down those barriers. You're talking about the walls and, and opening the door for people like us to be at the forefront of a competition that institutionally was not used to us. seeing anyone that looked like us, light skin, brown skin, dark skin. And you really did kind of build the table so that now, oh, it's nothing. We're, it's expected. And so when we're having kids and, and daughters and sons, um, they don't have to go through the same things that you had to go through or we're going through now. Yeah. I mean, we're talking 1983. And when I was growing up, I, you know, I grew up outside New York, multicultural area. Um, so I didn't think it was a big deal at all. And it wasn't until the rest of America spoke up that really like shocked me like, wow, I am living in a bubble because this is a big deal. This diversity, this racism is a big deal. You assumed it from the South, but 
you didn't realize it. They didn't realize the totality of it. And the year that I won, we had the most minority uh, contestants ever. We had four black girls and one Hispanic. So the odds were actually more in our favor mm-hmm. just because we had more to choose from. But Deneen Graham, who was from Miss North Carolina, and uh, she was a ballet dancer, she had a cross burned on her front lawn because she was black Miss North Carolina. And we're, you know, so we're we're not talking about the 60s where my parents had me and my brother. I was born in 63. You know, Kennedy was assassinated that year. And so you think, oh my God, I'm bringing my child into this world where we're in the middle of the civil rights era. Yeah. So cut to 20 years later, you think, okay, everything's calmed down and we've seen each other as human beings. And then this rears its ugly head again. It's like, okay, we have we really progressed? And then looking this, and then having my kids. And when I was a young mother, I moved from LA on, on the heels of Rodney King right. because Rodney King, that, you know, we moved back to 92 because I said, I am not living in LA where I've got to be a, a concerned about getting out of the car to get gas because somebody's going to, you know, want to harm me because of me being black and, and, and watching the cops beat the hell out of him. And the only reason why it, you know, was a deal is because it was caught on camera. Yep. So it seems like it's cyclical. And again, we've lived through this past year having yet another cycle and it's the hard lesson and we've taken all those lessons and now we've turned them into wisdom and now we can act upon them. Right. And New York is definitely a special place that makes you almost forget <laughs> that there are these issues that we're dealing with outside yeah. of the city. So I've, I've realized that now that I'm back home in Philadelphia um, during quarantine. I moved yeah. to New York five years ago from Houston, Texas, okay? And I am realizing now that I'm back in Texas because of quarantine, the differences in racism in each part. Like, there's racism in the North and South, let's be very honest. Mm-hmm. But the way that I felt racism growing up and realizing that other Black people didn't maybe have an innate threat, but knew it was, like, in, in education and in sports in these light ways, to be honest, I don't know which one's worse. Like, in Texas, at least I, I know who does not like me. I know where not to go. It's horrible, but I know. In New York, it's kind of like hidden. Mm-hmm. It's like hidden in the weaves. So, wow, that's interesting. You know, we had uh, again black to, to back to Black Theater United. We had another town hall with Sherilyn Eiffel, who uh, is uh, uh, the head of the NAACP um, uh, Legal Defense Fund, and uh, we. During her town hall, and they're all available on YouTube, she talked about all the systems that have been in place. So you think, why, why, why? And then you go, okay, well, 1953, blah, blah, blah happened. And that's why that law happens. That's why you can't do this. Mm -hmm. And in 1960, whatever. And she just broke down every law and why it came and why why we've had to legally change things in order to to get ahead, whether it's housing, education, um, everything. And her... What I remember most is like you've got to show up, mm-hmm. even if you know when your when your children are part of um, a school system, even though you're not maybe on the board, uh, you know the the school board show up at those meetings because things that will be passed they'll see a black face and go oh, hmm, she's not saying anything but oh I have to acknowledge that there are people of color here yeah so you have to show up and have to be diligent and that's again what Stacey Abrams said you know in order to make change you got to change the law you got to be invested and show up and and just whatever it is take the time to vote exactly but also while we're researching you we realize like how open you are talking about love and marriage and even heartache and so I had to ask you this question as <laughs> someone who's been with her boyfriend for five and a half years and from one black woman to another 
is marriage worth it? Because I love love. <laughs> I love black love. But like, do I need to sign these papers or not? Do I need to? Do you, do you want kids? Maybe. I don't know. Right. And the thing is like, my mom's going to kill me for even admitting that it's a maybe because I'm Southern and she wanted them five years ago. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, well, obviously, well, I would, I would say for kids, the earlier you start, the better it is to recover and, and all that. Oh but, gosh. So basically and, I'm screwed. <laughs> I know. I think I, Vanessa, I waited too long. <laughs> Amira's been in a five and a half year relationship. I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it as a mother, I I've my kids range from 33, 31, 27 and 20. So I I completely get where you're coming from and how you want to establish yourself and and kind of amass your fortune and then bring the marriage and kid component in. I get building your own empire together uh, or having it together and then starting another layer. So five and a half years, I get um, and again, it's, it's a matter of, uh, for kids, I think it's always great that mom and dad are married just because it makes them feel like there's really a unit and they really are loved, but that might be archaic at this point. You know, I don't know whether it's not, so I don't have that answer for you. Um, but having kids has been the best thing I've ever done in my life. I don't regret one minute of it. Uh, is it terrifying? Yes. Is it the right time? Never. Uh, do you ever have enough finances? No, but it always works out. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the black community, it's unfortunately not as common to kind of see nuclear families like you're speaking about in which there's a mom, a dad and a happy family that lives together. I know I am a product of love for sure, but you know, my mom and my dad, they love each other. Are they together? No, because they're not necessarily the right people for one another. But who was that person who were like the archetype for what Black love really looked like and that you were aiming to emulate anytime you got into a relationship with anyone? Yeah, that's been my problem. My parents had a, <laughs> an amazing relationship, you know? Um, they were both uh, music educators. My dad was the band teacher. My mom was the choral teacher in same same uh, county, but different schools. Mm-hmm. So they had a love for music, a love for education, uh, a love for each other, a respect for each other, and a devotion and loyalty um, that is real. I've, it's really rare to see. Mm-hmm. And my dad was such a great man that I've always said, Oh, I, I, I dream about the possibilities of everything. And then I get disappointed because I had, my dad could sing, he could dance, he yeah. could play every instrument. He was well read. He was funny. He could build, he could, uh, you know, fix an automobile. He would, you know, my boiler was, not working, dad, come over and fix it. So, you know, he was everything and also handsome and stuff. So it's been really hard to not expect who the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with is not compared to somebody who can do everything, which is really, really tough. And uh, I lost my dad when he was 70, which is so, so young uh, suddenly over MLK weekend, uh, 15 years ago. And, um, it's, it's, it was startling and he was really kind of a force, uh, in the community with everyone he met, great conversationalist. People would go on long walks with him, great teacher. Uh, but what filled me up when we had his memorial is so many people said, Oh my God, your dad taught me this. I'm going to miss your dad so much. Oh, I think about him all the time. And I think, wow, but he was my dad. I glad that you had that relationship and you feel 
a connection, but I'm glad that he was my dad. Mm-hmm. So it's been really, really tough. So it's, that's an excellent question. And, <laughs> uh, and it's been kind of my downfall because I expect to be with somebody who doesn't disappoint me. And unfortunately it's really tough. It's really tough. I totally so agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's so hard. Men are hard because they're trash sometimes. <laughs> That's why I'm like, I don't know. Like, you're great. I love you, but like for life? (laughs) And you want to live in my house forever? I don't know. Share those bills, girl. Share those bills. That's the way I'm a plus. He keeps bribing me. He's like, you know, you don't have to pay rent. And I was like, rent in New York? (laughs) Maybe. But as a, you have to also be, I don't want to say psychotherapist, but find out why this person is the way they are and what injuries and issues and ancestral DNA they bring into this world and why sometimes they can't share, why are they quick to anger? And then think, what would it be like growing up as a black man? What would it be like walking down the street and always being a threat uh, and being afraid for my son, you know, and being afraid for my brother? Uh, Those are things that we have to deal with as a community Mm -hmm. that, that it's been really a wake up call when when this word you know this phrase white privilege has been thrown out and people say I, I don't have white privilege and they hear what we have to go through on a day to day basis being judged and and being fearful then they get oh I, I guess I really realize that I can walk the streets and not feel any kind of threat at all so as traumatic as these months have been I think it's opened up a lot of people's minds as to what we have to go through. Uh, in our in our society as a community. Yeah, totally. And I'm like kind of the same as you in which I've been blessed to have an incredible father figure in my life. And so as someone who's like dating now, I'm like, oh my God, Kirby, do not compare him to your dad. Do not compare him to your dad. He cannot be your dad. <laughs> like, So I'm trying to navigate that like crazy right. voice in the back of my head too. And then the ones that do have all the credentials that are Ivy League and blah, blah, blah. They have so many women coming after them that their egos are way up here and then they're not even attractive. Yeah, it's like, okay, you're not you know. that great. <laughs> <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You've been in the public eye. And I think when, well, I believe in your public eye, a lot of what we see is perception. So we don't see like your intimate thoughts and how you're actually feeling. Um, has there ever been a time when you've really broken or like questioned your self-worth because of like what was going on in the public or even privately that we just didn't see? No, I um, I guess you can consider me a futurist. I mean, an optimist is one thing where I'm not like a, uh, you know, everything is rosy and it'll all work out. But I, I believe that um, you'll always get a chance to shine. You you know, you don't know when that opportunity is going to be, but like just, uh, you know, write things down, be focused, um, be open, be 
willing to take chances, whether, because you never know what opportunities will happen when you think, okay, this is going to work. And then someone offers you something else that might, that you might not even know about. And you try that, it could open a a whole bunch of doors that'll eventually get you back around to where you really wanted to go to. So um, I think I would consider myself a futurist. I, I, I can't wait I'm hashtag what's next, mm-hmm. hashtag more. Yes. Okay, great, what's more? And when I look back and people are like, oh, did you realize that when you sang at the you know, Academy Awards, how was that? I go, that was good at the time, but I was already looking at what's next. Mm-hmm. So I can relish the times and the opportunities that I've had singing the Super Bowl, you know, all those wonderful moments. Um, but but also I'm like, what what more can I do? Because learning new things is great. Um, meeting new people is fantastic. Jumping into experiences where you've never gone is, is exciting and scary, but it helps you to grow and just makes you, uh, you know, be a better person. So I'm always like, okay, what's next? Give me more, give me more. I feel like sometimes though, self-love in our community is, it feels conditional. It's like, okay, it's dependent on a man or it's dependent on, you know, chasing that next career high, or it's dependent on someone else's happiness that we hope kind of emanates on us. I think one of the things that I love about you and I admire about you, there's such a poise and a confidence and like a charisma that you carry. Um, with yourself. And I think a lot of it comes from you just being very confident in of who you are and proud of everything that you've accomplished and know you will accomplish five, 10, 15 years from now. So what kind of does self-love look like for you? I, I think you have to ignore a lot, you know, especially social media. You are, you're always, you're always in competition. Well, God, they're, they're there at a fabulous hotel. I need to go there. When will I make enough money to be able to do? You, you got to really step back about the competition mm-hmm. because you'll never feel satisfied if you're always comparing yourself to other people. So that's really tough to do, especially when you're young because you're trying so hard to figure out who you are and how you should look and how you should sound and what, you know, what's going to be most acceptable. Um, so that's that's the 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 first thing uh and then you mentioned uh, about having a man <laughs> and i had uh listened to and i can't remember who it was but they were saying women are always judged on do they have a man oh how are you single oh you know yes. and men are always judged by are you working what's your job oh you don't have a job oh okay so it's men are like they their self-worth is attached to what they do mm-hmm. and women's self-worth has been attached to who they're with. Yeah. Which is something that we need to get away from. Yes. That is actually one of the reasons why I was always (laughs) hesitant to get married because I saw, (laughs) uh, I saw an easy article or speech that um, Shonda Rhimes was giving and she was like, I'm not going to get married because then you'll start acting like that. You're at, you'll be asking about like him and like, it'll be about him, not about Mm -hmm. everything that I do. And that annoys me. Like I work hard. We all work hard. Like I am very proud of everything I've accomplished. Like that's way more important. It's not, Getting a man is not hard. Right. <laughs> right. 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 That's not an accomplishment. <laughs> Preach let's, talk about, let's talk about these degrees. <laughs> let's talk about getting into entertainment, being only black people, women there. Like, yeah. Let's talk about that. I don't know. Right. I just never, and it, I, it pisses me off because I kept my boyfriend off social media for years and I posted him one Halloween, like four and a half years ever. And it makes me mad that that was the most liked photo. And I was like, <laughs> I graduated twice, guys. I work at A&E. Give me some credit. I don't care about this man. I love this man. 
This was not hard. Now you yeah. find yourself putting your boyfriend down, knowing that you love him so I much. Know. I, I love like, him dearly, but I was like, <laughs> that was the easy part. Yeah. Okay. I will well, say though, as I've gotten older, it's felt so much easier to just quiet the noise in recognizing that your friend's accomplishments or, you know, anyone's accomplishments around you are like, you can celebrate those things. It's not mm-hmm. competition. It's yeah. like everyone is in yeah. their own lane. And I think exactly what you were talking about, like once you quiet that noise, it's actually really nice to be in this position right now. Well, that, I mean, I, and with more women in power, we've got more examples, but there's also at ease, like, you know, Shonda. I mean, yeah. she's a great example of just doing it and not letting anybody judge her and, and creating great content. And like, look at Bridgerton. Everyone's like, I saw, I ran through that thing and it was amazing to see those examples and the color wasn't even an issue. Yeah. And all these men, uh, men and women are salivating over, <laughs> uh, I, Jean, I can't remember what yeah. it was named, Jean, 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 whatever. <laughs> Who's fine. So. Like, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, we can be in the Regency era of London or England and not have to worry about, oh, that would never happen. Mm-hmm. One example, again, was with, with Diane Carroll and um, uh, Sunset Boulevard was on Broadway and Glenn Close had finished it and um, uh, they, she wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. So she had to go to um, um, uh, Terrence McNeil, not Terrence McNeil, uh, um, Cameron McIntosh, Cameron McIntosh. And uh, they had a meeting and he said, well, you know, there were no black uh, black films, uh, silent film stars back in the day, can't work. And they said, is, is, this, is this based on a true story? No, it's fictitious. Then she can do it because it's a made up person. She can do whatever you want because it's made up. And it was because of that that allowed her to be, oh, she was amazing uh, on Broadway in, in uh, and she'd already won a Tony for No Strings back in the 60s. So it wasn't like somebody who didn't know what they were doing was supposed to be in a great role. She mm-hmm. was completely perfect to do it and she did it brilliantly. But it's those being persistent and saying, you have to look with another lens at this dynamic woman who could wear the clothes, sing the songs and be as electric that as she needs to be because she's a woman of color don't close the door on her. Right. So yeah, another example. But the more women we have in power, which is, I think it's, it's we're really making strides. 100%. It's like, when I realized, I was in early college when I saw Shauna, like what she was doing and I switched majors. And I was like, I didn't even know this was a thing. I didn't know I could do this. I didn't know black women are doing this. I was like, that's what I want to get into. I want to get into TV. I don't know how I got in here. I snuck in guys. <laughs> But <laughs> I, it like clicked and I was like, that's how it works. It's, it's a domino effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Shonda's, Shonda's a great example of uh, just, you know, networks want to make money and, she'll, and, and if they make money, then they keep giving you more money and she continually just shines and now she's at Netflix and just killing it. So when you're given the opportunity, you know, Going there, guns a-blazing, yeah. These networks benefit from creators. They don't care what the color looks like. They're benefiting from our stories, our ideas, um, and our ability to just show how awesome and creative we are, so. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You stormed on the scene originally in beauty pageants, but you are so multifaceted and so talented and do so much that we just wanted to know, like, was it hard to break into all these other things that you were good at, all these other talents and lanes, like music and theater, once you were first in, because sometimes people like want you to stay in one lane and put you in a bubble. 
absolutely. It was hard, yeah. And they, uh, they, uh, you know, my my view to my career was I used to love watching um, the old Technicolor '40s and '50s movies where big dance numbers, everything was beautiful and bright and gorgeous costumes, and and um, and everybody basically sang. To, you know, Gene Gene Kelly. You know, sang, could act, but also broke into dance number. Sammy Davis Jr., one of the most talented creatures alive back in the day, could play, you know, drums, then play guitar, and then play, and then sing, dance, tap, and be a showman. So you, uh, Frank Sinatra even Mm -hmm. did, uh, from here to eternity as an actor, but also sang his songs as a crooner and danced in On the Town. So that was, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be able to do everything. When in the 80s, it was kind of the singer-songwriter or you're a pop star or you're on television or you're in, in film and there was really no crossover. And um, and that was kind of the end of the variety shows where you'd have, um, you know, for instance, Carol Burnett would sing but be funny and, and do a dance number. That was really kind of waning back in the day when I wanted to do all the things that I wanted to do. So it was hard to be seen as as multifaceted because people only wanted to be in one lane. And, um, you know, which I talk about in my book, musical theater was what I did. Mm -hmm. And I had an audition um, to replace Twiggy in my one and only, which was a a Gershwin musical on Broadway. And uh, Lee Gershwin, who was Ira Gershwin's widow, was head of the estate. Mike Nichols was the director. He contacted me and said, I want you to do this. Tommy Toon taught me the choreography and the tap. I learned all the Gershwin numbers uh, and uh, did the audition at the theater. And it went perfectly. Perfectly. And Mike Nichols gave me the thumbs up while I left the room. And um, uh, I thought, okay, I got it. And then I heard from my agent that I didn't get it. And I saw Mike Nichols years, years later, and we were talking, it was the opening of uh, West Side Story back in 2010. And I was like, oh my God, how are you? Good to see you. And he said, oh, I said, I'm writing a book. Can you just tell me what happened that, that day? And he said, oh my God, do you want to hear the real story? I yeah. said, yeah. And he said, well, yeah, you know, you did a fantastic job. Uh, I, got, I, gave a, I gave a thumbs up to Lee Gershwin. You left. I went to the back of the stage and was walking down the staircase and the phone rang and I picked it up and, uh, and it was Lee Gershwin. And she said, over my dead body, will that whore be in my show? And I said, wow. Wow. I had oh. no idea how tough the image of me as a scandalized beauty queen was and how solid that door was. It had nothing to do with talent, had nothing to do with bankability, selling tickets. She did not feel that I was worthy to be in her show because of who I was and what she thought my character represented. I think they give, like, as Black women in the workplace, like, I'm scared to do anything because they will call me angry so quickly and hold my image for years. So how are you handling image after controversy, knowing that you're a Black woman and knowing mm-hmm. that it carries more weight? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, being uh, labeled is really tough. Uh, as a Black woman, um, you are put in a box um, from for me, I was not only a beauty queen, which was not who I was, but then a scandalized beauty queen after photos that I did were sold without my permission behind my back and basically made to, to, to get money for, um, you know, a huge magazine, again, all behind my back to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
the scandal that I had to deal with walking into a room when I had to actually audition for things was not only like, uh, is she a beauty? She's a beauty queen. She can't be that smart and she can't be that talented. And then, oh, she's a scandalized beauty queen. Well, she'll be willing to do this part because it's racy. Uh, you know, it's not very good. Uh, her clothes are off. So she won't have an issue with that. And it was really tough um, as a as an actress trying to trying to get a job to be taken seriously. And I think that was the reason why I said, okay, once this, once the dust's all settled, I'll get a chance to really show who I am. But in the meantime, I'm going to do what I know that I can control. And that's kind of when I went into recording because it had nothing to do with what people assumed I was because people always didn't know what I could do. Oh, I didn't know she could do that. Oh, Mm -hmm. I didn't know she could do that. So controlling my image and my music allowed me to succeed, which opened all the doors to everything else. Yeah, I think I've learned too that we give such little grace to young people that are in like the public eye. And even yours wasn't a mistake. Yours was not a, a something that you did wrong or, you know, something that you even thought would get out. But I'm like, anytime someone in the entertainment industry, especially from like 15 to 21 year range, mm-hmm. feel like they do something that is so normal, we would never hold our own <laughs> people, right. to, you know, like your own kids to that same level of like scrutiny. It's crazy. But, now, but, but unfortunately now it's instantaneous. Yeah. There's not even, there's no time to get ahead of it. Yeah. You know, with social media so quick, I feel sorry for, that's why kids are killing themselves. I mean, not these K-pop stars and yep. they're killing themselves because they yeah. can't deal with the shame that they, they are getting faced with immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's horrible. There's no time to get a PR team together and strategize like, how are we going to handle this? What show are you going to go on to explain this? How, what, what article can we put out? Now it's like it happens overnight and your life is all over the place and just on blast. So I really feel sorry for kids, kids, young people, and, and people in general that make that are human, that make mistakes uh, when something happens and people take advantage of them. Yeah. Yeah. But you also have celebrities that, you know, benefit from scandals like yeah. that <laughs> who are totally making a living off of it. So, yeah. And don't really have that much talent to actually be able to utilize. Say it so. again. Yep. Very true. <laughs> yep. Very yep. true. Touche. <laughs> oh my All gosh. Right. Can I just say, I just got back. I was on leave. I had brain surgery this year. So I was out for a very oh. long time recovering. Oh my yeah, God. Talk about black women can do anything. <laughs> it was a long story. But during recovery, I had to just like sit and watch TV. And the first show I binged was Ugly Betty. Oh, and I yes. just, I, so when we booked you, I was like, yes, this is like a full circle moment. Cause it like got me through the hospital phase of recovery. And I just like laughed for like all of those seasons, binged all of them on Hulu and ignored everyone. And like dealing with all of that, like the hospital during it, it just got me through it. So just had to put the, I, mean, I thought you were going to say soul food for some reason well, in my head. hundred <laughs> percent soul food, of course, but Ugly Betty, all those seasons on Hulu got me yes. through. I was like, I'm going to ignore all this pain. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. laugh for the next hour. I ignored like doctors when they came in. I, <laughs> I am. Well, glad you're so, so glad you're all right. All right. But that's a, a perfect example of color having nothing to do with, with performance. Um, you know, when I got, uh, ugly Betty, uh, it was because the person, my, my dad had passed away and I was just like, I had checked out and I didn't want to do anything that pilot season. And they reached out and I said, no, I wasn't interested. And they had hired somebody else and they got to the table read. And after they did the table read, 
uh, I got a phone call saying, mm, um, we need Vanessa Williams and we need her to start tomorrow. <laughs> and it wasn't because they needed a black woman to play, you know, because, uh, you know, um, uh, Meryl Streep certainly was not black when she was in, um, in, in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And, and also Anna Wintour is not black. So um, it wasn't an example of what they were actually doing, but they needed somebody strong who could hit it. And they, and, uh, and uh, Sylvia Orta, who was the, creator who unfortunately just passed away about a year ago, mm-hmm. um, uh, saw me in uh, uh, a Diva's Christmas Carol. And he's like, I know exactly who can do this. So it was that performance, again, that had nothing to do with me being black. It had the, my, my acting ability, at, at which they knew that they could use for Ugly Betty. So you never know. It's so colorblind now, because if it's a performance, they can, they can rewrite anything nowadays. So you're not bound to your the color of your skin, which is which is the way we really need to operate in the world, which is just like Bridgerton. Has nothing to do with color. It has to do with his performance and who he is as a man that makes you want to, you know, marry a dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a scam. <laughs> I was like, I feel tricked. <laughs> and also, I know we didn't discuss it, but, you know, black hair, which came out, a, a black, bad hair, which came bad out hair, on yeah. Hulu, it was a wonderful opportunity to, again, show discrimination within the workplace because of our hair. And of course, mm-hmm. in, the, in the movie, I play somebody who's really kind of rooting for this young black girl to say, listen, if you really want to make it in this corporation, go get your hair relaxed. It'll make you blend in and, and be able to reach higher ground. Of course, that, that shouldn't have been an issue, but... And of course, in the in the the movie, the hair is possessed and kills everybody. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but it was a great opportunity to uh, enlighten people who are in the corporate world who don't even realize hair is such a layered thing in our community from the get go. Yeah. Does she have good hair? Does she have bad hair? Is the hair breaking off? What's she doing to her hair? Is it braided? Is it crimped? Is it, is it, uh, you know, is it relaxed? It does it have keratin in it. You know, can you, so many opportunities to show what we have to struggle through in order to just be accepted within our own community, but also in the workforce. So hundred percent. Yeah. Can so, I tell you though, that film was Way scarier than I was expecting. Your character in particular freaked me out. The moment you like totaled the hair took over, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, why do her eyes look like that? What's happening? I loved it. Yeah. I when you touched on corporate America, I know we're short in time, but I when we were back in the office, Corby would change her hair like all the time, which I loved. But it made me realize that I was scared to change my hair because they didn't want to get asked about it by my coworkers. Because I just don't have that conversation. And now that I'm realizing it, I hate that. Like I hate no. that I wasn't. I would try okay to push it. you to change your hair all the I time. Know. Amira would come in t- to talk to me, and I'm like, girl we're going to just do whatever you want. She's like, okay. And then I'd see her the next week and she's like, nope, couldn't do it, girl. (laughs) Just do it. But it is different. You know, like, I feel like if you had, we had this conversation 10 years ago, my hair is straight all of the time. And I would be going into interviews and feel the need to straighten my hair just to be like, let my hair not be a topic of conversation. Now, honestly, I don't care. I do what I feel. I always want to look good, but You'll get, you'll get a weave, you'll get a wig, you'll get straight, you'll get curly. I mean, that is the versatility of our hair and, and it's, it's a gift. So yeah. yeah, I love it. Yeah, we did. Yeah. I loved bad hair, but yeah. whew, your character scared the <laughs> crap out of me. <laughs> um, did you ever feel like, and this is kind of 
we, we haven't discussed this and it, I don't want to make it into a negative, but I was actually listening to something um, in which Lala Anthony was a guest. And I'm wondering, do you ever go into auditions and feel like, dang, I wish I wasn't Vanessa Williams right now because someone like the writer or the production team is already trying to typecast you and know exactly where they want to put you instead of you just doing a normal audition. Well, luckily I don't have to audition now because I've got lots of tape that they can yeah. look at. But when I do get the call, yeah, to be like, oh, we need another bitchy boss and that's will nail it. <laughs> like for instance, that uh, Tyler Perry Temptation was a great opportunity. When I went in and she was supposed to be a matchmaker and a real, you know, again, a tough bitchy person. I said to Tyler, can I do this with a French accent? I really want to <laughs> make her just like so uh, different and so like over the top. And he's like, yeah, let's hear it. Let's do it. And then, and then while we were working through it, he said, now I want you to pretend that this was all a ruse. And, and at the very end, pretend that that was all fake when, when uh, uh, Journey clocks me and says, you know what? I, I Googled you. You're not even, you're not even friends. Yeah. And I say, get the hell out of my office. So it's those opportunities that you can say to a creator, you know what? I really would like to try something else. And they allow you to, 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 to frame it a different way. We stand a multifaceted queen. So thank you. (laughs) It's so crazy because I feel like growing up, I kept hearing the saying that you can be a jack of all trades, but a master of none. And nowadays with people like when I, when it comes to mind, I think of you, I think of Jamie Foxx, you can sing, you can dance, you can act, you can write, you can lead, shoot, you can fly for all I know. Um, and so Thank you again for knocking down those doors. But I do want to give you an opportunity to brag because you, again, talking about a master of all trades, really, you have a lot of stuff that you're you're doing right now. So you have a children's book called Bubble Kisses that you um, are getting ready to put out um, and then doing a West End performance this spring with City of Angels. We just saw you, as we mentioned at the top of this, uh, during the inaugural performances. Um, yeah, you mentioned Black Theater United too. Black Theater United started right after George Floyd when I got a call from Audra McDonald, who's a six-time Tony Award winner, and LaShawns, who was just doing the Donna Summer show, and she's done, you know, a bunch of Broadway shows. And she's like, we need to do something. I don't know what it is, but do you want to join? So it was it's Black Broadway performers that got together and said, okay, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna are we gonna fight against police brutality? Are we gonna talk about you know, uh, inclusion and theater, mentorship. So we've, during the past less than a year, come up with all these amazing initiatives and advocacy and inclusivity, these town halls that we did with Stacey Abrams, that we did with uh, Sherilyn Eiffel. Um, We have done summits with, um, we're doing one with the commercial theaters. We did one with repertory theaters talking about uh, issues that Black performers have had in their establishments, but also their establishment about administration and staff and boards and seeing more, um, you know, uh, uh, creators. One of our creators, uh, Karen Ford, is a Black sound designer on Broadway, and she's the only Black female sound designer on Broadway. So when you go in and you see somebody behind the board and she's Black, obviously it's going to be Karen. Mm-hmm. So go up and say, hey, great job. But She's like, I want other black young women, but black kids to know that you can have a career as a sound mixer uh, on a Broadway theater. So we have a mentorship program that we're establishing, you know, a registry that we can talk to people that if they say we can't find a black stage manager, well, guess what? We've got a bunch and here's where you can find them. So uh, we're just, you know, beginning to, to kind of find our feet and establish ourselves. 
We're working on a, a new video that we're shooting in the next couple of weeks. We have a song called Sand for Change, mm-hmm. which is going to be our kind of our, 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 our theme song that we're all going to, we've all sang on and we're going to do the video and it's going to be released uh, for Black History Month, February 26th on, uh, and on Cash Money uh, Records, through, <laughs> yeah, which is kind yes. of a nice. Uh, <laughs> yes. So Slim's uh, working it out for us. Um, so, and then you know, uh, besides Black Theatre United, I'd love to go back to London, and we were a week away from opening, so we were at previews, and we had such an amazing show. So I can't wait to go back to London because that's another thing I've done Broadway. I've never done the West End. Yeah. So that was yet another hashtag more that was like, okay, now I can star in the West End. So. Can't wait to get to that. And then I've got a bunch of projects that I'm working on that uh, we're working on in terms of production and, you know, finding the right home for them. Um, so a lot, lot is bubbling up. Yeah, we should get Black Theater United to team up with Swizz Beats and Timbaland and do like a Broadway versus. Versus, oh, I would live for that. Ooh. I would I'm putting that it out up. there. <laughs> because obviously, you know, we're, you're from New York. We've lived in New York. I feel like I'm part New Yorker at this point. Sorry, 215 family. But we know that the Broadway community is struggling and taking a, a hard hit because of COVID-19. So Ooh. I don't know. We <laughs> I've, I've already got, let's see. So Billy Porter is one of our founders. Who could he go against? Mm, there's so many. And also Lilius White. Oh my Lilius gosh. Lilius is like just amazing and she can blow and I would love to I would love to put her up against anybody (laughs) oh my god this is happening if Swiss and Timbaland don't want to do it Amir I think we have our next venture and we will do it with Vanessa let's move (laughs) do it (laughs) all right and final question please fill in the sentence my black is beautiful because my black is beautiful because it's unique and nobody else is me Perfect. That's so great. <laughs> yeah, I've so enjoyed this conversation, oh, particularly yeah. coming off of yesterday. We're just on a continued high. On a vibe. I know, I know. But I do want to say, you know, you have so many accomplishments that we could be touting uh, for, for years and years and years to come, but we are very proud of you. So thank you for taking the time to thank sit with so us today. Thank you so much. This is I so much fun. I appreciate it. So fun. I'm very proud of you, girls. Very proud of you, thank young you. ladies. That means thank a lot. You. The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amira Lawali. This episode was also produced by McKamey Lynn and edited by Brian Flood. Our executive producers are Ted Butler and Jesse Katz. The Table is Ours was created by A&E. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.